When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Football Social Daily, your daily Premier League podcast. Welcome to Thursday's Football Social Daily. This is your daily Premier League podcast and it was a clean sweep for the English top flight in the Champions League last night with both Liverpool and Manchester City winning their group games. Liverpool beat Atletico Madrid 2-0 in what Jurgen Klopp claimed was nearly the perfect performance. Man City were also victorious by a 4-1 scoreline against Belgian side Bruges. But Pep Guardiola wasn't so cheery in his post-match presser. The City boss came out swinging and we'll talk about that on today's show. We'll also box off the other European fair taking place tonight as David Moyes will take charge of his 1,000th game as a manager when West Ham travel to Genk in the Europa League. And how will the Antonio Conte era begin at Spurs in the maligned Europa Conference? And speaking of new managers, Newcastle United still haven't found a successor to Steve Bruce. We ask why and whether the new ownership at St. James's Park might be making a meandering mess of their managerial search. I'm Niall McCorn. Welcome to Football Social Daily. Thanks for your company today. And joining me on the show, just behind Alan Kerbishley at a cool 33-1 to 1 to be the next Newcastle boss, we've got Marley Anderson. How are you doing, Marley? Yeah, my odds are tumbling by the day after this absolute mess that's going on right now. Uh, I think my name's in the raffle for whoever gets the job next, so I've got as good a chance as any. I love those good old school dad style jokes. When uh, Portsmouth had about six players on their books and we were in administration, my dad always used to say to me, you should take your boots, you might get a game. (laughs) (laughs) Shut up, dad. (laughs) What are you talking about? And also joining us on Football Social Daily today, our resident Scott Callum Tyler, whose country is in full on green mode this week with private jets, diesel engines and beef (laughs) on the menu as well. How are you doing, Callum? I'm good, thanks. Scotland covering itself in glory this week, as usual. <laughs> well, there's uh, Europa League action as well for Scottish teams tonight. I think Rangers away in Denmark. But let's talk about the Premier League sides in Champions League action last night. We'll start with Liverpool 2, Atletico Madrid 0. Great result for Liverpool, beating the La Liga champions uh, with a clean sheet as well. Qualifications now secured, Mali. And considering what we discussed last time these two sides played, 
And yesterday on the podcast previewing this game, we thought it might be a bit closer than what it was. 2-0 to Liverpool and it was a pretty controlled performance, all things considered, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was It was professional. It was brilliant from Liverpool, to be fair. They, um, they made Atletico look like the kind of cannon fodder you get in the Champions League group stages um, that you just expect to beat. I mean, they had 75% possession. Obviously, that's helped with uh, Atletico going down to 10 men, but still um, dominant, totally dominant. They could have had four or five um, and really, really put uh, put Atletico to the sword, really. But two's enough. You know, take your foot off the gas, look at the weekend now. Um, and yeah, they were, they were absolutely brilliant again. Yeah, 100%. I thought that they, as you say, made Atletico look like they were at arm's reach the whole time. And Jurgen Klopp, after the game, nearly labelled it a perfect performance, Callum. And, you know, after a 5-0 against Manchester United a couple of weeks ago, it felt almost as if this gave him equal amount of satisfaction. I don't know what your take is. Yeah, Liverpool are pretty terrifying. Um like the way they controlled that performance, the chances they created, like the, their ability. Uh, I just watched the highlights to be honest, because I was watching the Bruges match. But their ability to create chances out of seemingly nothing, like they they don't need to get anywhere near as close to the box as other teams do. They just seem to find that ball. Their crossing is like formidable. They've got that ability to just slide the ball into places, and the striker's just there. It's a team that are clearly on song. Uh, clearly, you know, all the cogs are, are meshed together nicely and, and they are a pretty terrifying prospect, you have to say, and they were they were really impressive last night. Yeah, 100%. And Liverpool are now qualified through to the next round of the Champions League, the knockout stages, and we know how good Liverpool are in the Champions League. They've obviously won it six times as recently as 2019. So certainly Jurgen Klopp uh, will have one eye on this competition as well as the Premier League, you feel. You mentioned those chances in getting close to the penalty area or the need not to, I suppose, when it comes to Liverpool. And Trent Alexander-Arnold was a key part of that last night, Marley. Some great balls into the box, assisting, uh, I think, both goals, wasn't it? With with some really incisive passing. Where do you think he sits in terms of the top fullbacks in the game right now? Is it more about the style of play in which he operates? Because... When we're talking about fullbacks, if you're talking about a defensive right back, you probably put Aaron Wambasaka up there as one of the best defensive fullbacks in the Premier League, at least. When it comes to Trent Alexander Arnold, most of his key assets are going forward, aren't they? Yeah, um, it all depends on on the game and your your system and the way you approach the game. Like last night, as I said before, they had seventy five percent possession in that system. He's he's one of the best in the in the world with, without a doubt because. No team sets up to mark your right back. Like they just, he always gets forgotten about. He he's always the has the space in front of him to get the ball um, and and to meander forward and and be unmarked. Even if someone marks him, like it's a winger who doesn't defend. So he's he's got a natural advantage. You know, uh, Atletico last night are worried about Jota, Salah, who's also on his wing, which helps massively because everyone's you know quaking in the boots about oh you know how many. Can Salah score against us if we don't switch on? Um, and the guy behind him is just as dangerous because when Salah goes inside, he goes outside, and you've got a double threat there all the time. Um, his delivery is superb. His passing's incredible, um, and it, it, you know his crossing, as you seen last night, the cross for for uh, Jota's header was was superb. It should have been defended better, to be honest. You know, if you, you expect one of the best defensive teams in the world to uh, to react to a cross which you always knew was coming in at that point 
but it was that good. It, it took out the the centre back and even managed to bounce before Jota headed it in, which no cross should ever do. To be honest, no cross should ever ever bounce in your box. It should be met on the on the full by uh, your, your centre back who's trying everything he can to head it away. But that that is Trent's uh, delivery. He's he's got that there. Um, the second one is just as good. I'm not I'm not even sure if, if it was a shot. I don't actually. He's he's like good enough to disguise that as a shot, but mean it as a pass. Um, for uh, for Mane's, uh, sort of deflected tap in type of thing. Um, so yeah, it depends on depends on your performance. Because again, if you give away like sixty percent possession, um, he might struggle defensively because you you can get at him. And you know, I like him as a player, but he is defensively still not quite at the top of his. Um, at, at the top of the game, and I don't think he ever will be. But that's the the balance you have, you know. If you've got him in your team, if somebody gets at him really, like a lot, you know, yes, he might be uh, might be a weakness. But for what he gives you when you've got the ball, there aren't many better in the world. Yeah, I remember when David Beckham was at the peak of his powers, putting balls into the box, and obviously Manchester United back then, Callum played a two up front, so he had sort of two strikers to aim for, and the. The idea was to to try and score headers and sort of half volleys and that sort of thing. In terms of Trent Alexander-Arnold and even Kevin De Bruyne and these players now in the Premier League that we see with excellent delivery, it's almost more about putting the ball in a dangerous area of the pitch rather than trying to pick out a teammate. It's almost, well, if I put the ball in that spot, in that region, it causes more problems and it's up to the rest of my team to get into those positions rather than picking his head up, seeing a player in the box and going, I'm going to aim for him. I think so. I think also the forwards that they're passing to are much more mobile than the ones that, that Beckham was trying to hit. So Beckham was probably trying to hit a, a, a striker that was just kind of standing around, whereas Trent's got at least three very quick, very tricky forwards that are sprinting into the right positions. And I think also the understanding of the game and where to be. And the they, they always talk about how coaches like Klopp and Guardiola play the percentages and they really concentrate on sort of um, managing the kind of the odds of like, well, if you're if you're in that six yard box this many times, you know that'll have so many expected goals or whatever. And I think it probably makes Trent Alexander Arnold's job very simple, which is just keep hitting that space again and again and again as many times as you can, and we'll just get there as often as we can. Um, and then actually, when it comes off, it looks like he's put it on a plate and he's kind of laser focused the the pass straight to their boot. But I think it's just it's a sign of how the game is coached and how these players have been taught to play, but also how they're just so consistent um, at, at, at doing their job right. But yeah, he's a he's an absolutely phenomenal player. I've seen people say, Marley, that Trent Alexander-Arnold could play as a central midfielder in the future due to the ability he's got on the ball and his passing range. But I have seen him play there before. I think for England, he's played as a central midfielder in a couple of games and it's not really worked. And actually, his England involvement has been limited under Gareth Southgate recently. Do you think that it's a bit of a waste if he's not being utilised effectively? Because we, we've seen on a number of occasions over a number of years now just how good he can be. Yeah, I think um, if you've got one of the best right-backs in the world, why why bother trying to turn him into a midfielder? You get more attention as a midfielder. I think it's easier to mark if you play him in like Liverpool's midfield three. He's got more people around him. Yes, he can play there, absolutely. He's good enough on the ball, but... I'm always a fan of putting the strongest players in the strongest positions and, and building your squad around him. It's not like he's um, he's a player that's that can only play in in certain systems. Like most most systems use a right back or a right wing back, so he's always going to have somewhere in that team that he can make his own. I think the the thing with England is just that 
there's that many right backs he's trying to make the best out of them and we've got less very very good centre midfielders than we have very very good right backs um, so I think when Southgate did that um, yeah when Southgate did that Klopp was Klopp was fuming with him and he was like why would you play your best right back in centre midfield and, and a bit critical of it but you can understand why he did it however just play you know play square pegs in, in square holes don't try and um move them around too much even though he probably can do it but in the same way that you know Andy Robertson could probably be a really good defensive midfielder because he's good at tackling and he's got loads of energy but you wouldn't try and put him there because he's great at left back and same goes with many many other players as well but for me Trent is um is very very good at right back so keep playing him there what's what's the issue yeah, absolutely. And he was involved in Liverpool's goals last night as they beat Atletico by two goals to nil. Jurgen Klopp was pretty chipper after the game. Pep Guardiola wasn't so, despite the fact his Manchester City side beat Club Bruges by four goals to one at the Etihad last night. It's a good win for City, just a point really needed now for them to qualify to the knockout stages. I think we should mention Joao Cancelo before we talk about Pep Guardiola though, Callum. Unbelievable performance again. Three assists in the game, a constant threat down the left-hand side, often pops up through the centre as well. He's proven to be a real star buy for Manchester City, isn't he? Absolutely. And if I was uh, if I was on football Twitter with a player as my avatar, I would be saying how the biased Scouse media uh, are just bigging up Trent when actually Cancelo's twice the player. <laughs> uh, many tweets I have seen from Man City fans this morning. Um, yeah, Cancelo, he was brilliant last night. He's he had a he had a bit of a slow start to his city career. I think he kind of admitted himself he struggled to adjust to Manchester life and also to the way that Guardiola wanted to play. But I mean, one of the things that Guardiola said in his in his presser afterwards was that he was he's in a good moment. Um, he's he's an incredible player on his day, um, and he's he's brilliant. He's really really dangerous. And I think the the kind of marauding runs he does from wing back. I'm not sure he's quite the same sort of out and out hugging the touchline type player that that Trent is. Um, but his eye for a pass, the way that he can kind of actually cut inside sometimes as well. He can also play in midfield. Um, he's a he's a really versatile player. Um, and last night he he kind of showed everything that he could do. And and he he basically, I mean, three assists and a four one win. He he kind of single handedly won that game for us almost. Yeah, one hundred percent. I thought he was excellent last night. You know, three assists out of the four goals, I think, speaks for itself. Also, Raheem Sterling scored last night, Marley. And we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, I think in the reverse fixture when City won 5-1 that Raheem Sterling almost needed a good game because the longer he goes without scoring and being involved and making a nuisance of himself the more that criticism is going to be attracted to him he did break his goal drought last night he scored a goal City fans will be hoping that that'll be the start of kind of a rejuvenation of form because it's not been the easiest start to the season for him yeah it's um it's not but um he's his talent never goes away so you know it's there it's not like he's you know fell off the fell off a cliff in terms of his 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 talent and his form like he's not been at his best but i think that's more because there's other players playing well at manchester city than um than him playing poorly you know Grealish has came in obviously he's going to get games and time to settle in that team mares has never put a foot wrong for a couple of seasons now um, and you've got others in there as well, you know, Jesus playing towards a wing, Foden playing across that front three. So it's not like he's um, he's just lost it. He's still quality. Um, but it's, it's nice to see him scoring last night. Obviously, it's just to tap in, but it'll do his confidence a world of good. And I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't bet against um, 
Pep starting him in the in the derby. I think he's one of them, one of them big game players. Now you see him for England. He he turns up in the big games and he's he's proper up for it. And he's one of the guys who who will like take a game by its uh, by the scruff of its neck. And I just wonder if uh, if Guardiola is keeping him for the Manchester derby and maybe taking Jack Grealish out or something like that. But We'll have to wait and see. I might be might be completely wrong. Probably am, but um, the the point is Sterling still quality, and if you've got that strength in depth, then you know you're a very scary proposition. You should know by now. After five years, Marley, you can never second guess Pep Guardiola. Well, well <laughs> yeah. that's that's why I said it. You know, people might go, "He'll never do that," but then he'll get to uh, he'll get to the game, and he'll be like, "Oh Christ, uh, Sterling's playing." Zinch- Zinchenko up front, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> waiting for Edison up front at least once yeah. before he leaves Manchester City. What's your thoughts on that, the Raheem Sterling situation? I don't like to call it a situation. He's just a player who isn't in as good as form as he might like to be. What's your What's your thoughts, Callum? Yeah, it's like, you know, obviously I was pleased to see him score last night. He's long been one of my favourite players. I think it was good to get him back in a team back scoring, especially because there's been sort of rumours flying around that he was away possibly to Arsenal or Newcastle or Europe somewhere. Um, I don't think that's going to happen, certainly not in January. Uh, they seem to have quieted down a little bit, but he's, yeah, I think it maybe took him a little while to get back into form and fitness after what was a huge summer for him. Um, not just physically, but I think also... He was one of the leaders of that England team. He was one of the senior players. He had there was a lot on his shoulders, and he didn't really get a break. Um, and I think I think it was just a bit of a slow start, as Marley said. He's in a very competitive team um, with a whole bunch of players, some of whom came off a, a pretty long break, the likes of Mares. Um, but yeah, I think I, I can see I can see it going both ways. I can see it being a bit stop start depending on the chances that Pep's going to give him. But I can equally see him going on a bit of a purple patch now, sort of. Uh, into January in the new year um, and you know I, I hope he doesn't and like you're saying if you're Man United trying to plan for whether Sterling plays or Mares plays or, or someone else plays Bernardo plays like it's kind of an impossible task to to prepare for that um, I mean Ollie won't bother anyway but you know it's he's he's a he's always going to be a danger and always a good man to have whether he's on the bench or whether he's in the team as you say the Manchester derby this weekend it's promising to be a really exciting game Finding it difficult at the moment to know exactly what you're going to get from Manchester United. Comfortable win over Tottenham, demolished by Liverpool and a draw with Atalanta, which some suggested papered over the cracks. I think it's really difficult to tell what might be in store this weekend. But speaking ahead of this Club Bruges game, Pep Guardiola mentioned in that press conference before the game that this match against Bruges was more important than the Manchester derby. Now, I said this on yesterday's podcast and that maybe his comments might have been taken slightly out of context. I think his suggestion was that the group stages of the Champions League, you only get six games to qualify, whereas in the Premier League, he said that there are still 28 games left and it's still only another three points at the end of the day for Manchester City if they beat United at the weekend. But certainly in terms of a soundbite, it, it made for a good headline, didn't it? Pep Guardiola says... Manchester United game is less important than Club Bruges game. Despite the fact that his side beat Club Bruges convincingly in the Champions League last night, you'd think he might be in a, in a good mood after the game. Certainly wasn't the case. Have a listen to this. The people taking the to me for the fact I said today is more important than United. And it was. Now, right now, the most important game ever is Man United. So maybe the people have the ability to think about for the next one, forgetting what you have to say. Maybe you interview right now, you're saying to me, it's less important than the interview we're going to do next Friday to me. So I don't know. But for me, today was really important because in the Premier League, we have 28 games left. 
28. And here there are just six games to play, to qualify. It's just three, now two. And this, like Bruce, it was incredibly important. And the people say, no, Pep is a... No, it's not. That it is so important today. And we want it, and that's why we are in a good position. We need one point, three points to qualify. And in February, hopefully we can be in the last 16 with the best teams in Europe. What do you make of that, Marley? Because I think he made his point pretty clear there in what he was saying. The most important game is the next game. And at that point in time, the next game was Club Bruges. It's an old manager cliche. And I guess Pep was uh, was at the end of his tether with it a little bit. Yeah, it's nothing new, is it? You know, most managers do this. And, and Guardiola's did this for a couple of years, hasn't he? You know, the next game's the most important one. And he, he seems determined to mean that. Like, he, he wants everyone to to get used to that. And I think with the way the media is around the world, but obviously, especially in England, you know, if you say something's not as important as something else, you know, it, it's all it is, is, is clicks for them. You know, it's a, it's an easy soundbite. It's an easy headline to write that you almost in, imply that Pep doesn't think the derby is important, but any, any fan with half a brain knows, knows where he's coming from on this. Like everybody knows that, he thinks that the next game is the most important game because at the end of the day you can only win your next game you can only concentrate on your next game you can't you can't win the man united game on a wednesday night in the champions league because it doesn't happen until saturday or sunday so it's it's just another example of it and i think it's just it's just got to him a little bit and it's um it's probably it's just got just got under his skin a little bit and because it, it's probably like the 25th 30th time this has happened and that would start to annoy you after a while. So I completely understand where he's coming from. Yeah, I can also understand why the fans are annoyed, though, because he didn't need to say that, did he? He didn't need to say this game is more important than the Manchester United game. But he's always said that, though. I don't know whether it's unfair for me to say that because English is not his first language. And I think you need to be careful when you're criticising what people say when they're not natural or native English speakers. I think that's important to stress. But surely someone with the experience of Pep Guardiola would know in the week leading up to a derby game, don't say something like, this game is more important than the Manchester United game. Because it just isn't. I know what he means in terms of the context of the next game being the most important game. And like he said in that clip, 28 games left and there's only six or three left in the Champions League and two now, just exactly like he said. I understand his point. But it's not more important than the Manchester United game. It just isn't. It can't be. Not for Manchester City fans, surely. So I can understand why City fans are starting to get a bit annoyed with some of the things that Pep has been saying. Because I said this on yesterday's podcast as well. He even got into a bit of a tiff with the official supporters club a few weeks ago. You know, listen, they love him. They adore him. But I just think some of the things he says, he doesn't help himself. And then he comes out and says, oh, you're taking the out of me because I said this. Well, don't say it then. That's kind of the that's kind of my takeaway at times from Pep Guardiola. I appreciate his passion and I understand what he's saying entirely. And I do think his point's been taken out of context. But he could have saved himself a whole lot of stress if he just didn't say it. <laughs> he he does he opens himself up to this. He's he, he has a tendency, it's always this stage of the season, or sometimes a little bit later in the season, he just gets really agitated, really spiky, like sort of gets a bit personal uh with journalists acts a bit kind of offended by everything and that whole you just played a clip of it there that whole press conference after the after that rant he just gave mm. kind of one and two word answers uh oh you know what what, what did that goal do for Sterling's confidence don't know you'd have to ask him uh just a lot a lot of that and I think he's he's clearly feeling the pressure I think I think City fans are used to the idea that he's a little bit disconnected from the kind of what we think of as 
the most important thing for the club and I think um I think genuinely he views the United game as like Barcelona playing Espanol. I don't I don't think he sees it in the same way as he sees a Liverpool game um or a Champions League game. And I also think I'm just you know, we've we've dropped points already in this group to to Paris. We've got Paris at the end of this month. I think that's the next game. I think he'd really like to not have to go in the, into that game needing to win, um, just because that that then puts all the pressure on that. So I can kind of see where he's coming from. I also think, having listened to that full press conference, which I don't often do, some of the journalists just kind of asking the same question again and again and again, like they they're poking the bear, and it, to some extent, <laughs> to some extent, he's given them that reaction, right? And I, I do understand that that he should that he should learn now not to do that, but equally just f- find something more intelligent to ask him, do you know what I mean? Rather than ranking the importance of various games, like talk about the tactics or talk about how good Bouge were. Or just, I don't know, just, you know, change change tune at some point. Yeah, I, I know what you're saying. And actually, it's interesting because I think in his post-match interview with BT Sport, just to kind of continue on this thread, and I know we're not talking specifically about the game, but City were good value for the 4-1 win. So we can leave that to one side for now. But in the post-match interview on BT Sport, I think it was, he hinted at, Manchester City not getting help, to paraphrase, unlike other big clubs, was what he was insinuating. Is that what you think he was referring to, Callum, or were you uh, not so sure what he was hinting at there? Genuinely no idea. That whole bit was kind of quite incomprehensible to me. And I think, again, I'm, I'm wary of criticising too much because I think sometimes his, his English can be a little bit hard to decipher. Um mm. I wouldn't be surprised if he's not very happy still about the decisions in the Crystal Palace game and the red cards. And <laughs> I, like, I genuinely would not be surprised. The if most important game is the next one, but I'm still angry about I'm last just, week. Just been stewing about that just all week. Um, so yeah, to be honest, I, I don't know. I don't really know. And I think he um, he obviously compares he obviously compares himself for all this talk about how oh we're just focused on our next game and blah blah blah. He also constantly talks about Jurgen Klopp and Thomas Tuchel and the rest of them that he clearly sees himself alongside and com- and compares what they get to what City get and I think I think yeah I don't know he's obviously seen some kind of decision and he knows he can't talk about it explicitly so he's just sort of speaking in these riddles but it was a bit beyond me. Yeah, Marley's right though. He hasn't changed in five years and I don't think he will, obviously. And it does make for good entertainment and it makes for good talking points on the podcast as well. Just finally then, before we move on, it's the derby this weekend, as we've said. Do you go into that game off the back of this result, Callum, with confidence or anxiety or naturally because it's a derby game, there's going to be a bit of both? Uh, A bit of both, I think. This United team, like we've said, are so hard to predict. Like I would actually be feeling more comfortable if they were just on fire and it was just going to be like a kind of more like a Liverpool game where both teams are brilliant but I think United could either they could either implode and it could be another sort of 5-0 6-1 type thing but equally they've got some very good players they don't seem to have a system or any kind of tactics or any kind of coherence as a team but sometimes they get through games because they've got like a couple of the best players in the world who just turn it on um and yeah, I, I always think back to that game where we could have won the title at the Etihad and United beat us 3-2 and Paul Pogba had an absolutely incredible game having been totally rubbish for two seasons around it. Um, and yeah, I'm always anxious about it. But I think in many ways, there's never been a better time to play United. But that's exactly the kind of time that City would lose to them. I totally agree with you as well. It's It wouldn't be a surprise if Manchester United lost handsomely to Man City. <laughs> but it also equally wouldn't be a surprise with the players they've got that they went and beat yeah. Manchester City. It's, it's such a fascinating game. Looking forward to previewing that game as well on this weekend's edition of The Dugout, which you can find right here on this feed here from Football Social Daily, featuring former Premier League professionals Trevor Stephen and Matt Jarvis, who'll be joining me. So hit subscribe and that way you won't miss another episode. We're going to be talking about Newcastle next on Football Social Daily. We'll do it after this. 
Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Football Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. Welcome back. This is Football Social Daily from Sports Social and Newcastle United are on the agenda now. Much to the delight of Marley Anderson, who's joining me, along with Callum Tyler. They're still managerless, though. The tune, they haven't replaced Steve Bruce. And the latest news coming out of St. James's Park this week is that Villarreal manager Unai Emery has rejected the club's approach to become their new boss. He says he's remaining 100% committed to the project he's got there in Spain. The local press were allegedly briefed that Emery was going to be the new boss. The plug has basically been pulled on that. What's your take here, Marley? Because what Steve Bruce has been sacked now for a couple of weeks? Is it becoming a bit of a shambles? What's your opinion as a fan? Uh, shambles isn't too far off um, right now. The the, uh, the the names have been going round, you know. Um, plenty of of, uh, of names have been going round. Conte at first and, you know, Zidane and all these like huge, ridiculous names that we were never really going to get. Um then it sort of settled down into Fonseca. There was talks with Fonseca. Then it quickly moved to Unai Emery, and that was as close as it's been. But it always worried me that all this all this speculation about him being in for the for the weekend, like in 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 charge for the weekend against Brighton, um, it always was weird to me that that was all coming out on on a Tuesday when Villarreal were playing that night. And I just thought this is strange timing. Usually, like. Villarreal play on Tuesday night and then in the Champions League and then the rumours have come out on Wednesday or something like that but um, it's just yeah it it, it, it's, it was strange and then obviously he comes out with this this statement that he's staying wasn't really massively surprised because I was wondering why you'd leave Villarreal to come to Newcastle um, although I had kind of convinced myself that he'd he feels like he'd hit a ceiling with Villarreal and maybe that's why he fancied the challenge of of Newcastle, but obviously it didn't work out like that. Um, he's gone and we're back to square one now, and the, well, almost square one. And square one is basically Eddie Howe, who's always been available, has been for the last two years. Um, should have got the job probably as the 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 day the new owners came in, because now he's got that that situation where it's almost like Nuno at Spurs in the in the summer, like you know you were never first choice for the for the job. Um, and so do the players, which is not the best sort of start to to things from the consortium's point of view that have bought us, because they've came in. There's no director of football. There's no manager. There's um, there's still play. There's still people involved from Bruce and Ashley's spell in time in charge, <laughs> keeping um, quiet, not meeting anyone, <laughs> yeah, yeah. sticking away We're, from everyone. We've still got all the Steves um, <laughs> um, as as the first team coaches, Steve Agnew and Steve Clements and Steve Harper. <laughs> um, they're all there. And um, Lee Charnley's still there trying to do deals. And the one thing Lee Charnley did for Mike Ashley was prove to everyone that he's not a, he's not a football negotiator. He doesn't really know um, how to do it. So it's a bit of a bit of a mess. You mentioned Charnley's not a football negotiator, which is a fair enough comment to make, but are the new ownership football people? Has Amanda Staveley, have the Ruben brothers, have they ever been involved in football before? I don't know much of their background, to be perfectly honest. Maybe you can shed some more light if you know that information. But 
is it a case of they've gone into a Premier League club, which is effectively an organisation because that's what Premier League clubs are these days. And maybe they've not bitten off more than they can chew. I think that's the wrong terminology to use, but certainly found it more difficult water to wade through than they first anticipated. Um, yeah, I think that's one of the one of the things like it is it is businessmen and millionaires that are involved in this deal. There's not too many that are um, that are football people as you describe you know um have advisors and things like that uh and we're kind of looking at them to to guide us through but who who are the advisors like nobody really knows um so it's it's not it's not perfect um i feel like they they're sort of relying on the money to get them through things and, and i think if you believe what what what's coming out about emery the rumor is that he's uh, that he said they lack a clear plan and I think that's because the the takeover took that long that they probably had plans in place and then when it got rejected, those plans fell apart a little bit and targets went elsewhere. Um, and then finally, when the takeover went through really quickly all of a sudden, like we were meant to go to court and everything like that, the takeover then got, um, like the court case got dropped and the takeover just went through like, like zero to 100 real quick. Um, and then everyone was like, but it wouldn't surprise me if everyone was like, "Oh Jesus Christ, we had a plan. Now we don't have a plan. Now we're we're in we're in now we're in the seats now we're we're taking over. We've we've got to, you know, we've got to sack Bruce. When do we sack Bruce? Well, we'll, we'll sack him straight away. Oh no, we won't. Is that because it happened so quick with the piracy thing getting sorted yeah, out prob- almost probably. rapidly? You know, it was it was it was on the back burner, wasn't it? This takeover for ages, and there was meant to be an arbitration hearing in January wasn't yeah. there which is still two months from now yeah. about the outcome of this case with the Premier League and then all of a sudden one weekend oh the Saudis and the Qataris have sorted out their issues over piracy and that paved the way to give the takeover the green light and all of a sudden it's oh my god it's happening and do you think that that it, it, it might be what it is it's kind of caught them on the hop a little bit yeah probably um there's probably some uh some like reason to that reasoning to that some logic behind that so um yeah, it probably has caught them out a little bit, but then again, you know, you could say they've had th- two years or more to, to to plan for this situation. So should you have been ready the whole time? Should you have known that the minute you get in, you're giving Bruce's P forty five and and giving it to Eddie Howe to the end of the season, or are you giving it to? Have you got a manager almost on retainer from from um, this uh, this sort of situation playing out? Because for me, if they'd had everything sorted out and if they'd known this this thing was going through in uh, October, there is no way they wouldn't have went to Rafa Benitez in the summer and said, don't take the Everton job. We're three months away from from being in charge because that's, that's, that's exactly the, the logic you should have had. But they didn't know. They, they thought this is going to go on probably till next summer at least or, or at least February or January whenever this arbitration case was. So they're probably thinking... Well, there's no point in talking to Rafa because the deal's dead in the water right now. It might resurrect, but we can't go to him and say, "Give us, give us six more months, give us another year," because it's it's not fair on him. Like he's, he's, the guy's got to work. It does make me laugh that you are a Newcastle fan first and foremost, but your second team this season is just whoever's playing Everton. 
<laughs> so, you know, well, if if uh, I think I said on the on the podcast just before the takeover went through, I'd almost consider supporting Everton if if Bruce carried on at my club because basically every Everton had everything I wanted at Newcastle, which was Benitez, uh, <laughs> Rondon. Even though he's a, a couple of years later, Townsend was there. We should have bought four years ago. So it, it was almost like Everton were, were Newcastle light or Newcastle put 2.0 or something like that. So <laughs> Newcastle beta, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, I mean, weird. Marley, we know your opinion on the Steve Bruce situation. So I'll ask Callum, do you think st- sacking Steve Bruce with no replacement in the picture was a wise move or not? Surely they have to get a new manager in before this weekend is, is done because it's international break after that. And so they've got a two-week window where... If there is a new manager to come in, that's the time they need to bed in. They've put themselves under tremendous pressure by sacking Bruce, haven't they? Like if they could have just held him there until they found someone else. And also, I know that you know managerial prospects are a bit thin on the ground right now. But I would say wait till wait till the January transfer window in February, when loads of managers will be kind of moving around, resigning out of work. Like you might have a lot more options. So there might be a big casualty kind of next year that wants to go straight back into a job I think I think yeah they've they've done it in a way that has put maximum pressure on themselves and also I, I do you know what I think it was I think it was the temptation they want to be seen to be doing something straight away we've got to do something straight away sack the manager ah oh, what's next like you know they couldn't it would have been such a anti-climax I think they would have imagined it being such an anti-climax if they come in and just not done anything um and kept Bruce in and, and fan you know they, the fans would be getting a bit annoyed by this at this point and the results probably wouldn't have changed but the results haven't changed either and you are actually looking now at a situation where they might have Newcastle in a relegation fight till the end of the season is how the right manager for that job do you now need to go and get a an Allardyce type figure like someone to get you out of this hole and then sack him in the summer um it's just yeah it's an odd one and I don't think to to your previous point I don't think they are football people I don't think they're quite attuned to the sort of how important it is to stay in the Premier League at this stage and who can keep you there because um, I actually wouldn't really necessarily back how to do that I think they need someone to kind of galvanise them a little bit um, and, I'd, and you know who, where are those managers who, who do you go, yeah. do you go and get so. yeah in terms of credible options I think we've spoken about Fonseca on the podcast we've spoken about Unai Emery today we've spoken about Eddie Howe in the past I think Lucien Favre was another name that was linked plus all of those Hollywood names that Marley listed as well before now is it Eddie Howe in terms of he's the only real manager out there that fits the criteria in terms of understanding the Premier League fits the criteria in terms of is out of work fits the criteria in terms of isn't going to be someone who maybe demands more than is on offer right now if that makes sense he's again in the picture a lot of people consider him Marley as the man who took Bournemouth down rather than the man who got Bournemouth from League Two to the Premier League so in terms of a relegation fight which is what Newcastle are in right now let's be frank is he the right man for that job um well, he's been in it before, <laughs> and he, um, I, I, I don't know. I don't know who's right for us right now because, you know, if you're bringing a, a specialist who's used to fighting with clubs, you are looking at one of those idiot managers who you just got rid of, like Allardyce and all these, all these sort of teams, uh, all these sort of managers that come in and manage teams for six months and bugger off in the summer. So that's not that's not right for long term or longer term um, appointments. So for me, Eddie Howe plays, I mean, I've, I said this, I think I've been saying this for about a year now, I would take Eddie Howe at Newcastle in a heartbeat. I think his, his, um, his style of football is fantastic. 
Um, is it suitable for a relegation fight? I'm not really sure. However, he did keep Bournemouth up for four years when they were probably favourites to go down um, playing that type of football. So, yes, it went wrong in the fifth year, but Bournemouth were always probably the smallest club on paper in the league in that in that point. They had a twelve or 14,000 seat of stadium, not that much money coming into the club. They were owned by, you know... Um, Maxim Demin is a Russian fella. So he did have yeah. a few quid actually at Bournemouth. Yeah, they, yeah, I don't, I don't few... like people saying plucky Bournemouth that have no money because they got <laughs> loads of it and they spent <laughs> yeah. a lot of it as well. No, exactly. um, but certainly I think that, you know, in terms of working with players like Callum Wilson, Ryan Fraser, yeah. I mean, yeah. Alan Samaxaman playing in an Eddie Howe style would be quite nice to watch as well. It, it's inter- Sorry, it's interesting though because like Celtic were chasing Eddie Howe for about three months and they eventually turned him down because they didn't have a vision and he didn't believe that they had a plan. <laughs> so, like, yeah. surely he's not going to rock up and, and think the Saudis have a plan and a vision. Well, like, apparently he's, um, he interviewed for the for the job this week or maybe to the, to the end of last week and he apparently presented an incredibly detailed plan of what he would do with the squad and what he wanted to do in January. So I feel like Eddie Howe's been waiting for this job for at least a year now. I think that's one of the big reasons why he didn't end up at Celtic, because Celtic is a is a good job and it's relatively easy to to get, you know, to to do what Celtic want to do. They want to be challenging for the title. That's fairly easy, and it's them against Rangers every year because they've got the way, you know, the the biggest budgets in the league and what have you. And then do what you can in Europe. There's not that much um, pressure on you to to go and succeed in Europe, for example, but. I think he, he, he always knew Bruce was, was going to get sacked. He was a dead man walking for a long time. So I think Eddie Howe has kept himself free. Um, I don't I don't for a minute believe he's had no offers. Um, so it's not like nobody wants him and, and no one's looking at him. I think he's just thought, that Newcastle job is perfect for me. I've got, you know, the infrastructure will be there by the time he gets the opportunity to take the job because it was always only going to come to him when the um, the takeover went through. There's money there to spend. There's a good base to work with. Um, the squad, yes, needs work, but he has worked with a couple of them before, as we mentioned, Wilson and, and Fraser. Um, he's been around the Premier League. He knows the rest of the squad. So I don't think it's a bad bad appointment at all. It's just one of those things where what is what is the situation going to be when everybody knows that you weren't for first choice? Because sometimes that, that gets you off on the wrong foot. However, having looked at his, I mean, there's a clip going viral now of his of his training sessions, how how technical and how detailed they are. I think that that'd be huge for our squad because Steve Bruce used to just kick a ball in the middle of the grass and say, "Right, lads, let's play," and that is it. And there's even a quote from uh, from uh, the Richie Delat, it was who <laughs> played for him under Villa uh, at, at Villa, and he literally said it was like an under nine session where he just kick a ball and say, "Right, lads, let's have a game." And that isn't that's great when you're an amateur, but that's awful when you're a professional. You want to know what to do in certain situations. So Eddie Howe would be, for me, a very good appointment. Yes, not quite Emery and not quite the names we've been linked with Favre and all the rest of them, but still a, a much better, uh, much better than what you've had for the last two and a half years. So crack on. Newcastle is a long way from Dorset, though. So there we go. But I'm sure it's an opportunity that he'll certainly Can be. Can he stand the cold in. up there? <laughs> that sea breeze coming in. 
Eddie Howe is certainly on the shortlist you have to suggest for Newcastle. When will they appoint a new manager? We'll have to wait and see, of course, when we find that information about that. We'll let you know on the podcast and, of course, on the website as well, sport-social.co.uk. Right, European action for other Premier League clubs taking place as well tonight. We've already talked about the Champions League. We'll talk about the Europa League and the Europa Conference next here on Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Welcome back to the final part of the show. Time to talk about the European action tonight for West Ham, Leicester and Spurs. In terms of Leicester, they play at home tonight to Spartak Moscow. That's a big game in the context of their Europa League group. They're currently third and they're still yet to play Napoli. Uh, and they travel to Naples in the first week of December. But we won't talk about Leicester for now. We'll just focus on West Ham and Spurs for the time being. We'll start with the Hammers, who travel to Belgium to play Genk in what will be David Moyes' 1,000th game as a manager. How would you reflect on his career so far, Callum? Do you think he's someone who maybe gets a little bit of disrespect due to a couple of failures that he's had in his career, mainly at Manchester United and then at Real Sociedad? Yeah, I think he's... I think on the whole, his career has been a success. It's hard to weigh up looking at a thousand games, whether it's been a definitive success or a definitive failure. I think the United job was a bit unfortunate. I think probably looking back, he might have thought that it wasn't quite the right time to be so soon after Ferguson. But then Ferguson did kind of anoint him, didn't he, and said, this is the guy. So I think he will have been vindicated by the fact that um, nobody's really succeeded at United since he had a go. Um, I think when you look at what he's done for Everton, the consistency that he brought to that team um, and what he did like before Everton at, at the likes of Preston um, and also what he's done at West Ham and the way he's managed to stabilise what was a bit becoming a bit of a basket case of a club. And they're really difficult to beat. They've had some big wins this season. Um, they've got to fancy themselves in, in Europe, certainly um, at this stage before we know who's who's dropping in from the Champions League. But um, yeah, I think I think Moyes, I think within the game, Moyes is really well respected. I think people know what he's about. And I, I think it, it's one of those classic things where he's kind of got a bit of a look about him and he's kind of a bit dour and he's kind of not, you know, he's not the sort of sexy Jurgen Klopp or Pep Guardiola or, or one of those type managers. And so he gets a bit of, a bit of grief and a bit of a... Uh, a bit of a joke made of him um, by sort of fans online and things, but I think I think within the game, people that know Moyes uh, know that he's he's kind of the real deal and he, and he's a proper, you know, successful, impressive manager. And you can just you can tell at the moment how much those players at West Ham are enjoying their football and how much they love playing for him. Yeah, absolutely. Congratulations to Moyes for his 1,000th game. Obviously, in the context of the Europa League, Hammers will qualify to the next stage with a win or even a draw, really, uh, considering they've won their three games up to this point so far. If you qualify as group winner in the Europa League this season, you avoid those Champions League teams dropping out, which, of course, is an incentive to teams in the competition from the beginning. How much of a threat are they, do you think, from what we've seen so far, Marley, and from what we've seen so far this season from them, not just in the Premier League, but also in Europe? Do you think that they do have the quality to go the distance or at least go deep into the Europa League this season? I think they've got enough to go deep into it. Yeah, I think they're they're managing really well at the minute. You know, they're, they're winning games they're meant to win. As I said a couple of podcasts ago, I, I can't remember the last time West Ham won games you expected them to win. You almost you always expect them to, to capitulate for some reason, for some unknown reason that, that goes against everything you, you think you know about them. Um, but yeah, they, they do look strong at the minute. You know, they're, they're playing well against 
top sides as well that look hard to beat and and a threat on the when they get the ball. So I don't see why they can't get to at least the quarters or the semis. Um, and then you're looking at them. Obviously, it all depends on the draw and, and what might happen when that happens. Um, but you are looking at them saying, I don't think anybody will will underestimate them anymore. Like, I think if West Ham were in this last season, you'd be like, well, they're a bit of an unknown quantity. But people are starting to look at them now and say they're really, really good from set pieces. They've got, you know, talented um, midfield, the front of that midfield three, the, the the wingers and the attacking midfielder, they're all very creative. They've got a, a striker up front who, as long as he stays fit, Antonio is a handful for any defender. Um, if they bring in another striker in, in January, which I, I still think they need, uh, they could be even even more of a threat. So, fair play to West Ham. They're, they're absolutely smashing it at the minute. You know, they've made easy work of this group. They're already through. Um, and it's now just about who who get who they get in the uh, the last sixteen or whatever it is in the in the Europa League? So not many teams will be looking at them going. Would love to play them because they're an easy draw. There's going to be way easier teams that make it through into this Europa League knockout stage that uh, that teams would fancy more than them. Yeah, hundred percent. West Ham travel to Belgium tonight to play Genk, expecting them to get the job done like they did in the reverse fixture. Of this one, Leicester, as we said already, will play Spartak Moscow. But let's look at Tottenham Hotspur, who welcome Vitesse Arnhem, the Dutch side, to the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium in the UEFA Europa Conference League tonight. Now, Antonio Conte was appointed as the new manager of Tottenham earlier this week. Reports claim, though, that he's still getting permits and documentation sorted and finalised. So he might not actually be in the dugout, but he is in situ. He's the new manager. Do you think we'll see a change of formation and maybe a change of form, Callum, for Tottenham, even if he isn't there in person. Uh, I think I think uh, it's quite hard to say, actually, isn't it? Because they would probably rotate for this game anyway. I think um, I think there's quite a few players in that Spurs team that should be pretty worried now that a, a, a manager of the likes of Conte is, is coming in. I think there's a few of them that are maybe going to be sitting a few games out. Um, yeah, I think it's actually it's quite hard to predict what kind of team he'll, he'll put out. I think they need to change it up anyway. They probably would rest players tonight. Um, Vitesse Arnhem of course are the Chelsea feeder club so it's it's kind of actually going to be even more embarrassing than usual if, if Spurs don't beat them um, even though that you know it's the Europa Conference League but it's basically Chelsea's youth team that they're playing so uh, yeah it'll be an interesting one I, I, don't, I mean we won't really know um, anything about Conte until until his first league game where he's actually in the dugout um, but it will be it adds a layer of interest to this for sure yeah, 100%. I think that Antonio Conte will probably have already met some of the players, if not in person, then via, via video link and with coaching staff as well. I'm not quite sure what's going on there. He's been given an 18-month deal, of course. Do you think this game, though, will be a bit of an indication, Marley, for the new manager from the very beginning as to which players are up for the fight and which players aren't? Because we've heard in interviews that he doesn't suffer fools gladly, does he? <laughs> Yeah, heaven help the first person that uh, doesn't quite show up and give their all in tonight's game because they're going to be, well, almost like a lamb to the slaughter if uh, <laughs> if that's uh, the case. Because as we know, you know, Conte is going to come in. He's going to be like a grenade on the on the on the touchline, bouncing round, shouting at everyone, absolutely giving everyone pelters if they if they don't track back or put put the foot in and win a ball that they should have won. So he's going to be. Um, box office which is 
brilliant <laughs> for a neutral because you you're always looking at Conte going how's he how's he not had an, just a heart attack every game because his 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 blood <laughs> pressure and his and his heart rate must be in the you know the high one sixties like at all at all times madness. You know what they say about stress? It makes means makes you lose your hair, and he's already had one <laughs> hair transplant. So <laughs> oh yeah, the smart money's on uh, on. Next summer, Antonio Conte being booked into a hair transplant clinic in Switzerland, getting another, <laughs> getting another hair transplant after he uh, after he's done with with Spurs. So it'd be interesting tonight, though. I think Spurs will definitely win. Uh, that new manager bounce, as we all as we always talk about, is is something that will will see them through. They haven't got the hardest opposition either, have they? Let's let's uh, let's be honest. It's not the the hardest game in the world. But um, yeah, we'll see. It's at home. It, you couldn't ask for a better game, really, to to kick off your your spell in Vitesse at home. You know, under the lights, brand new stadium and everything like that. A new sort of dawn, a new era for Spurs. You know, they probably have a a lot more fans in there than they, than they would have had had it been Nuno for another week. Um, so we'll see. We'll see. Probably see them in that back. Apparently, they were training in the back three slash five system. On his first um, on his first training session, so probably see that again, um, as as we've got used to from him being at Chelsea and and Inter, um, and we'll see what see what Spurs can do with it. But I think they're suited to it, and I think Vitesse are, are lambs to the slaughter tonight. To be fair, yeah, I think that we'll see some sort of reaction from Tottenham, as you say, whether that's due to the influence of Conte, whether it's just that new manager bounce, I'm not so sure, but I think we will see one. Spurs need the points anyway in this group. They're currently third after they lost to Vitesse last time around. That's it for today's Football Social Daily. Thank you very much, Marley. I'll let you go off and do some research into who you think will be the best next Newcastle manager. Yeah, I'm knocking up a PowerPoint presentation to uh, to suggest why I should be given the job until at least the summer. <laughs> well, you can't be any worse than some of the PowerPoint presentations going on at COP26 <laughs> that Callum's Callum <laughs> probably had to had to witness on his local news station <laughs> yeah just staying away from Glasgow for the time being <laughs> probably for the better thanks for your time listening to the show don't forget if you hit subscribe that way you won't miss another episode of the podcast again brand new shows every single day of the Premier League season but that's it for today's Football Social Daily and we'll speak to you again tomorrow Football Social Daily find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk Hello, it is your partner, Big Boy, interested in giving back to your community while making new connections in your neighborhood. Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network that empowers you to take action, contribute to local needs, and be a part of something bigger than yourself. Visit caneighbors.com to learn more about how you can get to know your neighbor and strengthen your community. Neighbor to Neighbor, it takes a neighborhood. Hello. Hello, it is your partner, Big Boy, interested in giving back to your community while making new connections in your neighborhood. Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network that empowers you to take action, contribute to local needs, and be a part of something bigger than yourself. Visit caneighbors.com to learn more about how you can get to know your neighbor and strengthen your community. Neighbor to Neighbor, it takes a neighborhood. Hello.